Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number eight, take one. Welcome to Rackhouse Ramblings. I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening. This is episode number eight. Well, it's been another crazy week, um, but I can tell you my last two shifts at the firehouse, we've seen a a considerable slowdown in uh, corona calls, and I hope this trend continues. That's a good sign. Uh, Ann and I have been staying at home, trying to do our part to flatten the curve and uh, listen to the governor's executive order. Uh, In this episode, I'm going to talk about a few uh, fix-it things, craft projects I'm working on while I stay at home. Uh, I've also been promising to tell a story, a a Jeff story. So this week, I'm going to share one with you. Then we're going to revisit some of my TV binge-watching stuff. I'm going to combine it with uh, a cool book to read. And then in the uh, Bourbon Spotlight, it's going to be a little bit different. We're talking about rye whiskey. So check it out. This is episode number eight. We'll be right back with the first segment. been finding things to do uh, to try and keep busy and I'm sure you guys have been doing the same things. Um, I don't know if it's the same things I've been doing but uh, I've been I had a craving for sweets so I made some chocolate chip cookies from scratch. No shit. You add all the ingredient, no box, no nothing. Everything from scratch. They were outstanding. Then uh, what I baked some chocolate chip uh, or not chocolate chip, chocolate cupcakes uh, topped with chocolate frosting and walnuts. Mmm, they were pretty darn good. And then, let's see, what else did I do? You know what, I had a, a broken eyelet on one of my fly rods, so I learned how to fix that. Uh, another thing I did is I added a motion sensor to a light switch in my basement workshop. So now when I walk in, the lights just turn on, and when I leave, they time out and turn off. Also made uh, a bunch of these little campfire starters that... Uh, I've made in the past and what it is you uh, recycle a paper egg carton and you stuff like the the dryer lint from your dryer I save that in a bag so you stuff each little cup with dryer lint then top it with some sawdust and then I melt the wax out of uh, some of those cheap little tea light candles I'll melt the wax and pour it into each cup and this kind of holds everything together so when uh, you're done you cut these little cups out and uh, you keep them in your backpack in a little bag or something like that and you can light them really easy with a lighter uh, with matches or I like to use a ferro rod uh, to do like the spark start and those are like my little campfire starters I use them all the time and they'll stay lit because the wax keeps them lit for a few minutes and lets you get a good fire going another project I worked on was um, I found this one sitting on my shelf and it's been there probably three or four years, probably longer. What it is, I bought an old Coleman lantern on eBay. And it's the kind that uses the liquid uh, gas, the liquid fuel, not propane. And, of course, it wouldn't work. And you know what? That's why it's was on eBay, and that's why it's been shitting, sitting on my <laughs> shelf for so long. So now I've taken it apart, I can tell you, at least 20 times, no shit. And I take everything apart, put it back together, I could never get it to work. And so now we've got time on our hands. I'm going to try it again. <laughs> so I, I took everything apart the 21st time, right? And spread everything out of the bench, laid it all out nice and neat. And when I say take it apart, I mean every single nut, every bolt, every washer, the plunger, everything. 
took it all apart, clean everything up. And I was kind of looking down into the fuel tank. And when I did, um, the fuel tank's that green base that it sits on, uh, like the heavy base on the bottom. And when I was peeking down inside, I could hear this bits of stuff kind of rolling around in there. So I tipped it over and started shaking. And you should have seen all the rust come like raining down out of this thing, little bits and pieces. So I kept shaking, 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 until um, all I could hear was like a dust. I could swear I could hear a little dust rolling around in there. And I spotted out of the corner of my eye, I have this magnet on a shelf and it's like a telescoping magnet for picking up things when you drop them when you're working on cars and all that. Bingo, I dipped it down into the tank and sure as shit, guess what? You poke it around in there and that rust is still metal and it just, all that dust started getting picked up. So I bring it out, clean it off, do it a few, few more times. And now I'm thinking, damn, this was the problem. I think I figured it out. So I put everything back together and probably took about 20 minutes or so, put in some fresh Coleman fuel, put on those little nets that you tie on, um, a fresh set of nets for the uh, mantle, it took two of them. I pumped that tank and with the, the way it works is you pump it to build up pressure. It takes about 50 times the first time. And I'll be damned. I, I tell you what, I lit it and sure as shit, the damn thing worked. I was like, I was so proud of myself because now I have a matching set of Coleman thing. I have a uh, 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 Coleman stove. I found it a long, long time ago at Salvation, Salvation Army Thrift Shop and it runs on the same fuel. And so now I have two things that run on Coleman fuel and they're at least 50 years old. The one is built in, uh, I think the date said 66 on it, something like that. And... Um, so, and you know, vintage shit is really cool. I like it. So the other thing I did, what else? I, now that I think of it, I spent some time working on leather too. Some, I like to mess around with leather. So I made a sweet uh, hat band for my Stetson cowboy hat. It turned out great. And on the front of the hat band, I put, uh, attached my little brass Fredbear archery token. So like if you ever saw Fredbear, uh, old recurve, uh, wooden bow or anything, they inlay these little uh, metal coin tokens and depending on the color that tells you what year they're made so i had one of those laying around and i kind of attached it to the leather hat band it turned out really cool then i made a uh, uh leather knife sheath for a small lock blade i carry so damn now that i think about it i've been pretty busy so that being said um yeah that's uh, that's all the stuff we've been working on well, i'm sure there's more that i'm forgetting but we'll be right back with the next segment Okay, it's story time. I have a, a surprise for you guys listening. <laughs> in the last pat podcast I mentioned, um, I would tell one of my Jeff stories. So uh, bear with me. Here it is. Uh, if you've heard it, <laughs> you know, you're going to hear it again. But for those that, that haven't heard it, I think you'll like it. So every year I, uh, I look forward to archery season. If you ask anyone, it's pretty much one of the things I live for. I like the fall colors. I like the cool, crisp air. There's no bugs, nothing like that. And I love to uh, bow hunt in northern Michigan, you know, for whitetail season. And for me, bow hunting, it, it's not just a hobby. It's really like a passion. It's one of the things I really, really enjoy. So I plan my vacation days around this whole season, starting October 1st. Like So the year building up to it, I'll plant food plots. Um, I put out <laughs> an army of trail cameras, I, usually at least half a dozen, and I leave them out and I scout for deer all, all year long so I know what trails are at, what times they come by. And um, for bow season, I shoot uh, a modern, like a high-tech compound bow with the cables and the cams on it. And uh, I love taking it out. And I've 
harvested many deer with it. But um, looking back, this was the year I wanted to do something different. Uh, I wanted to raise the bar, I wanted to up the stakes, kind of do like some next, next level archery shit. So I put away my uh, compound bow and I picked up my recurve bow. This was in 2016, by the way. And the idea is I wanted to kind of pay homage to like the people that archered before me to see how they did it. You know, you always, you read about it, you see it in the old movies and things like that. So I really wanted to try it. So um, in my collection of outdoor gear, I had an old Fred Bear recurve. I'd won it on eBay quite a long time ago. And it's uh, an olive green uh, Bear Kodiak Magnum, 1970s year it was uh, made. And you can figure that out if you go on the internet and search um, by reading the serial number and you look at the color of the inlaid coin in the handle of the bow. So to me, this bow, is, it's like one of my treasured possessions. And I'd had it for a while and I would only bring it out once in a while to mess around for target practice. And I really didn't have the confidence or the courage to take it out on a real deer hunt. But for, for fall of 2016, I was gonna change that. It kinda, I made a promise to myself not to pick up my compound bow at all for the season until I harvested a deer with my recurve. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the kind of silly stuff that I do to myself. So to I had to prepare. I was practicing um, with this recurve uh, all summer, like beginning of summer, spring, all the way through the summer. Um, I really, I'd never taken any lessons. No one ever really showed me how to shoot it. So I watched um, like every YouTube video I could stomach. I surfed through like Every these guys post up these homemade videos. I sorted through a ton of those. They all claim to be these experts, and, but I kept gravitating towards these old uh, Fred Bear hunting movies. And to me, Fred Bear was like way ahead of his time. He was making hunting videos before they were videos. And just to give you some background, they were um, old old school, like eight millimeter film and he made them for sales promotion. So Bear Archery was a company trying to sell bows and arrows. And when everyone was returning from uh, World War II, they were buying rifles, like 30 odd sixes and 30-30s and stuff like that. Hunters weren't convinced that bow and arrows could really do the job, or at least modern day hunters. So Fred Bear hired a photographer to follow him around and film his hunts. And he'd have them like edited and add narration, make them into a full little production thing. Um, they'd have to add sound to it because there was no microphones attached to the eight millimeter camera. So he would have these films made, carry these stack films around and have a projector and a screen in the trunk of his car. And when he made sales presentations, he would stop by because he was a manufacturer he would uh, expect other people to sell for him. So he would stop at a hardware store, a bait shop, a department store, whoever would carry his product and whoever would listen, he would show up with these uh, films. And so he would wait till uh, the business was closed in the evening. They'd close the doors, pull down the shades, and uh, sure enough, he would show his films. And it worked. Like all the, he would show the people that this is what you can do, you know. If you buy my bow and arrows, you can do this. Now, keep in mind, this was in the 40s and 50s. There was no scent lock. Um, no one hunted out of a tree stand. It was just old school. They called it stalking, walking through the woods with your nose to the wind. And I probably didn't mention this, but he was doing all this when he was in his 50s. He was not a young guy by any means. So he would show these films of him hunting and not just deer, but elk, antelope, rams, freaking tigers, elephants. And like his most famous is a grizzly bear at less than 20 yards. And less than 20, that's, that's nothing. That's the width of your, your driveway, you know, or your backyard, I should say. 
if you want to check it out, go on YouTube yourself and look it up. So anyway, like I had made up my mind, I wanted to do this. If he can do this, then I can do it. And I know it sounds corny, but that's kind of how I motivate <laughs> I motivate myself. I justify it in my head. So once you get past like the grainy images and this old school narrator and things like that, it's pretty impressive. So I found that that bow hunting, they call it using a stick and string, is way more complicated than it sounds. The gear isn't complicated, but the whole process is really takes a lot of effort. So I spent hours and hours and hours of practicing and hours and hours and hours of surfing the internet, learning everything I could. And eventually I was able to shoot like a paper plate size group. Um, a group means putting your arrows in the same spot, but I could keep them within like the size of a paper plate at 10 yards, I felt comfortable. So 10 yards, about uh, 30 feet. Um, the more I learned about hunting with like this traditional equipment, they call it traditional, the more I really felt like I had to do it. So uh, let's talk about arrows for a minute. I convinced myself that modern carbon arrows would spoil the experience. So again, I, I go back on eBay, track down some wood arrows, found some that were 50 years old. They advertised with feather, real feather fletchings and had these two blades, they call it broadheads, like the razors on the front. And when I started shooting it with the wood uh, bow, everything felt right. It felt so much better, so much smoother. And I don't know if what the deal is, but the, the natural stuff, this wood has like a mojo, like a soul to it. So I kept shooting it. I really liked it. But then what I found out was 50-year-old bows and 50-year-old arrows. And I, the arrows had 50-year-old glue on them. And after I started shooting them, I realized how brittle the glue was. And so I had to like reattach every single piece of uh, feather on every single arrow that I had. So it, it didn't take long to also to figure out that some arrows would shoot better than others. You know, they all look straight, but for some reason when you shoot them, it has to do with the stiffness. So I kind of separated the good arrows from the bad arrows. And the good arrows definitely flew a whole lot better. So one day, you know, I was at the uh, firehouse I'm browsing around on Craigslist looking for old uh, bear archery gear. Like if you just search bear archery or Fred Bear in there, you kind and it turned into a hobby for me. I guess it made me a kind of a, a collector, right? So I stumble across this treasure. I, I call it a treasure, but it's a bear archery uh, recurve bow, and the model is called a grizzly. And this guy had the the grizzly recurve and a box of original Fred Bear archery wood arrows. And it turned out to be a complete archery setup, everything except the bow string itself. For $150. So I had to have it. When I saw it in person, it was better than I expected. So it was in mint condition. It looked like it never left the closet. Nothing wrong. It had a quiver. And I can tell, like, the quiver wasn't even used because it has a foam insert. And when you stick an arrow up into it, it'll puncture the foam and make a hole. Well, this foam has never even been punctured. So I know it had never been used at all. So this is going back to the early 70s when, it, when I researched it. So another thing I found out is that... Uh, the arrows hadn't been shot because uh, the broadheads on the razor heads, the way Bear Archery did it, they made a piece that would slide in there and it would be a crossways forming a plus sign. So if you had just a broadhead with two blades, it would be like a minus sign, but you slip in this sideways razor and now it's like a plus sign. They would call it, uh, they're called the Fred Bear razor heads. And the little one that goes in the side to make it a plus sign would be called the bleeder blade. And that helps uh, uh, get a better blood trail, better penetration. So the little bleeder blades came in a matchbook and it looked just like a matchbook. You open it up and the little blades are kind of uh, 
uh, taped in there, and there's one bleeder blade for each arrow. And sure enough, everything was still there. Like it had never been, like he just bought it and put it in a closet. I felt like the little kid Ralphie on the Christmas story. <laughs> I had gotten all this beer archery stuff. I said, holy shit, this is better than a Red Rider. So anyway, everything was kind of coming together. My whole traditional archery bow hunt was, it was shaping up. I had the bow, I had the arrows, I had the aim. And I'm thinking in my head, I could walk in the steps of Fred Bear. This is going to be really cool. So I wanted to try and recreate one of the hunts I'd seen on one of his films. And it was titled The Oldest Game. And that's one of those short promotional films that he made. So what it is, it is uh, the hunt takes place in the woods of Pennsylvania. And the narrator explains like some of the ins and outs of archery and of hunting and how elusive the white-tailed deer is. And it, it's to me, it's really cool. I like watching it. But I wanted to try and recreate that and just get a little taste of what they experience. It's, it's like a really primal attempt <laughs> to harvest big game is what I thought. It, to me, it's like one of the ultimate fair chase things. So call me crazy, but I was really excited, the anticipation, you know. When holding the bow in your hand and the cedar arrow and everything, it just feels so freaking cool. It's almost spiritual. So anyway, I was comfortable with this range of 10 yards. And uh, it would be, the next challenge would be to get a deer within 10 yards, you know, within 30 feet, let alone harvest one. So being a typical Michigan bow hunter, I hunt from a tree stand and it's an elevated platform about 20 feet off the ground. And I sit, it's a Summit Viper climber stand, and the climber means that I need a tree that's straight with no branches, pretty much like a telephone pole looking tree. <laughs> now that, that I'm repeating it back to myself, I'm, I'm scratching what the hell was I thinking. But anyway, uh, so I'm fortunate enough, I own 10 acres up north and, and my property, property backs up to some federal land and I spend so much time in all that area walking and everything. I have really specific trees and trails and everything. And I was able to narrow it down to three different spots. And all three of them, they're just like a short walk right out my back door. I don't have to drive anywhere to hunt. I literally just walk out the back door and it's a few hundred yards and, I've, and I'm in my tree. So I, was, I, I limit myself to 10 yards just because of me and my aim. The Kodiak Magnum will easily shoot farther. So I, I wanna make sure I get a clean kill and everything's done humane and responsible. But when you watch Fred Bear, he'll take the same bow and shoot 30, 40, even 50 freaking yards. It's unbelievable. So I'm practicing, making sure I'm good at 10 yards. Um, the Kodiak Magnum feels really good. All through the summer I practice, into September I'm practicing, and finally opening day shows up. And this is October 1st. For me, it's kind of Christmas. Um, I get up, giddy, I have my coffee, I'm all excited, play my Fred Bear music, and if any of you guys have been with me during bow camp, you'll know exactly what I mean. So I walk out the cabin, got a big smile on my ear, um, go out to one of my sure thing ladder stands right at the back of my property overlooks a little meadow. And I'm really familiar. I've, I've harvested a number of deer out of this spot. And um, if you know me, you know, I don't mind sitting in the rain. The morning started with like a little drizzle, you know, like not, I wouldn't say a hard rain and it wasn't super cold, but it was fall and it was drizzle. And I thought like it was a big irony because there was a drought all summer and I'm hunting over a food plot and because of no water, my food plot died. And here I am sitting in the rain, hunting over a bunch of brown grass. What the shit? <laughs> so I, kind of, I didn't let it deter me, didn't let me get, get me down. So I sat there in the drizzle and I was like determined. I'm focused. I've got my game face on. And so around 7.30, you know, the sun comes up and I saw this deer out in the meadow, probably 70, 80 yards away. And its head was like up in the air sniffing. 
And uh, I was downwind, so my spot was good. I know I wasn't getting winded or anything. So to get the deer's attention, I rattle, use my little rattle calls and things like that. And uh, then I use my doe in the can call. And if you know me, the doe in the can calls, my, my favorite, favorite go-to call. Now doe in the can, it, it's probably the most ridiculous, stupid little plastic deer call that works. It's like a little can, you hold it between your, your first finger and your thumb, and then you tip it upside down, it goes bah, bah, it sounds just like that, like me doing it, right? So it, it I guess it's like a cow mooing, right? So I know it sounds silly, but guess what? The freaking thing works, man. So this time I let it rip, goes bah, bah. the deer paused, <laughs> looked my way, but then he just like turned back and walked away like the way he was coming from. So I sat there, I'm sitting in the drizzling rain, like another hour goes by and I'm not seeing anything. So bored and just like everyone else, what do I do, right? I surf the net on my, on my smartphone. <laughs> How's that for irony in old school? I'm using all this throwback archery gear and I'm holding my smartphone surfing the internet, right? It's <laughs> irony or dichotomy, I don't know what you'd call it. But so while I'm looking down at my phone, I see something move in the corner of my eye. I'm looking down past my phone, just past my right frickin' foot, and there's a spike buck creeping in toward me. Yeah, like my right foot. So imagine looking down at your phone, and there's your right foot, and you can see over to the distance this damn deer sneaking in. He walked in the steady drizzle, like silent as a mouse, and I didn't hear a frickin' thing. Not a twig sap, not crunching late, not nothing. And here he is, like... 10 feet away, <laughs> he's in my kill zone, right? So I got my phone in my hand and he's moving like slow and stealthy, like a little brown furry ninja. And I put my phone in my pocket. I reach for my bow, it's hanging over my left shoulder off the tree, I have a little peg in there. And boom, I get busted. He looks right up at me and our eyes kind of meet, right? So I'm trying to sit still and I swear it must've been like 30 seconds trying to stay there frozen like a statue. And finally the buck, the little buck kind of uh, looks back to the ground level and he keeps creeping closer and closer. No shit. So by now he was, he's standing at the bottom rung of my ladder stand. This is like a ladder leaning up against a tree with a platform. He's at the bottom rung, like right below me. If it weren't for like this harness, I could have jumped down and landed on it and, and rode this deer. So like really slow, as slow as I possibly can, I reach over to get my bow and sure enough, busted again. Fuck. <laughs> He looked up at me and this time he took off, you know, so there goes my Fred Baird uh, deer. I'm thinking, what the shit, man? I sat there a few hours more and nothing came my way. And it was the same thing for the next two days. So I ended up driving home thinking of all things I could have done, I should have done, but you know, it didn't change anything that happened. So the, the next weekend comes and I go up north. Um, but this time we're bringing friends up. So we're entertaining friends. And they're, they're not hunters, and Anne's with me, and our friends are with us, and they wanted to go hiking and all this, so we did. But I ended up getting like this little window of opportunity that I could sneak out and try to hunt again. So we're at the cabin making dinner. I said, you know what? I'm going to sneak out and grab my bow, give me one hour, and she agreed, and it was no big deal. So I grab the bow, take off, and I walk right out the back door, which to me, it's such a luxury. I don't have to get in a car or nothing. Just walk right out the back door, up the hill, almost the same spot where I'd spot the spike buck, you know, within 50 yards. But this time, I was going to do something different. Um, I picked a spot, and this was something I've always wanted to try. And it was really thick uh, dogwoods. And they're like bushes, you know. And my theory was, if I can't see the deer, they can't see me. 
So I went right into the middle of this thicket and I kind of knelt down and I bring out my dough in the can call and let it go. And uh, for good measure, I had my fake antler thing and I start rattling it and it sounds like deer fighting or whatever, right? So the other thing I did is I made it a point to kind of rustle around with my hands, like moving around the leaves and the, and the pine needles on the ground to make it sound like there's something actually moving or fighting and uh, break twigs and all that. So all the while, I let this little can work its little magic, bah, bah, and rattling and rusting the leaves, and I stay low to the ground. When you're low to the ground, I can kind of see through the bottoms of the dogwoods for about the bottom 18 inches or so. There's no limbs, no branches. So I'm like moving my eyes left to right, trying not to move my head or anything. I'm like, I'm on high alert. I was like frosty, right? Staying chill. So I knelt down and I could see through the bases of the dogwoods where there weren't any leaves. And sure as shit, I see these four fucking legs moving through the dogwoods. I wasn't even out there 15 damn minutes. <laughs> and this stupid thing worked. My whole idea, you know, I think it's never going to work. Well, guess what? It worked. The wind was kind of swirling around, so I didn't think it would last. But sure enough, this deer kept walking. Holy shit. I might get a chance here, I'm thinking. And so I kept it up. I do the calls. I do the moving. And um, it walked away, but then it came right back. We're, we're in the dogwoods. He can't see me. I can't see him. And uh, it ends up being, it's just outside. It's probably like 15 yards away. And I didn't want to shoot through. I could see his outline. a nice-sized doe. I think it was probably the, still the same spike buck. And um, if I had, like, my regular bow, my new my compound bow, I would risk shooting an arrow, a carbon arrow, through the, the branches but not with this one, because I knew the wood arrows wouldn't do it. They just all deflect off and all that. So just like before, the deer ended up walking away. But I'll tell you what, I sat there for another 45 minutes just to try it again. And of course, nothing came. And I'm thinking, okay, the deer have, it's score two to zero, the deer are winning. Me zero, the deer two, right? Two encounters, two close calls, but nothing happened. So I walked back to the cabin, but I was pretty geek because now it, it, some of my things are happening. To me, that was pretty cool that I could get it to happen. So that was it for that weekend. So a week later, I go back. This is my another try I'm going to do, and this time I sat in a different stand. Um, walk out the cabin, go to the top of the hill, go a little bit further, and I'm in my climber, and I, this is like a little well-worn path. I'm probably 20, 23, 24 feet up in the air, and I kind of am looking over a meadow, and I can see, I picked this because there's a well-worn deer trail, and it follows the edge of the meadow and goes into the woods. I know the deer in my area use this trail almost every day because of my trail cameras, right? So when I say trail, I'm not talking about anything big. A deer trail is really more like a well-worn, it's like a line of dirt in the forest floor. And I say a line because that's what it looks like. If you laid your smartphone down, that's about how wide it is, as wide as your, as your phone is. Because deer hoofs, when they walk, they're almost in line. Their stride makes them almost walk everything in a direct line. And that's what a deer trail looks like, this little muddy line. So I sat there, it's the evening, uh, overlooking the meadow, and it trails right into the woods. Um, I'd come up that morning, the weather was pretty mild and overcast, the wind was blowing in my face. I was expecting the deer to move from, uh, uh, what was I thinking, right to left, walking through the field, walk uh, from my right to left, through the field, down the trail, into the woods, and I'm sitting over the trail, I'm thinking it's eight yards what I ranged it at. That's like knife throwing range, right? So the deer in my area are pretty, they're really predictable. Like, like most of them, they'll move just before sunset. And I always like to say when the sun is below the treetops, 
it's game time. That means it's showtime. Stay frosty, get your shit ready, be ready, put your phone down. Of course, I never end up doing that. So sure enough, sun went low out in front of me. and I, Sun goes down the trees out in front of me, lower and lower, and finally it's below the treetops, and I heard some leaves rustling from the woods behind me. I thought, oh, shit, this wasn't the direction I was expecting. So I was planning on the deer coming out in front of me, right? So sure enough, behind me, but that's still okay. I had a clear shooting lane. I was ready. Um, the walking and the leaf crushing came closer and closer until you can hear it. It's like almost reminds me of an elephant walking through the woods, right? And it finally stopped, so I froze. And I'm holding nice and still, and uh, I sweep my eyes down the left. I'm trying not to move anything because that's what they pick up on is movement, right? So I sweep my eyes and down to the right without turning my head. Not 10 yards away was a little gray fox. It was pretty sweet. It was like, I have this mental picture right now in my head too. So for an instant, he, he saw me and we shared, uh, we stared right at each other and then phew, we took off really quick. It kind of, how in the hell does he know I'm 20 feet up in the air? There's no way he could smell me, but I don't know, foxes are smart for a reason. So I sit there and I think, wow, this was really cool. So a few minutes later, I hear the same thing. These leaves start rustling and sound like it's walking up behind me, this time from over my left shoulder. And I thought, that is so strange. I'm expecting out in the front. But like freaking magic, right out of nowhere, two does walked right up underneath me at my eight freaking yard spot. I thought, holy shit, now this is it. It's game time. So like slowly I'm trying to ready my bow and uh, take it off the hanger, I hold the knot, the string between my fingers, and the does are just kind of feeding on the edge of the meadow, coming out and feeding on the grass. And they had no clue that here I am, death from above, right? That's my nickname during bow season. So here's death, death from above in the tree uh, right above them, right? So everything's right, it's all up to me now, right? So the, the larger doe was eaten and moved a little bit, like a couple steps, further away about 11 yards what I estimated so and she was standing between these two pine trees and I knew I could make this shot and if you imagine your shooting window looked like two goal posts right they're sticking straight up and the doe was right in between the posts so I told myself just put it through the uprights and uh, you can get it so that with the recurve I had in one hand the string in the other and out of nowhere I start hearing the song playing in my head this you know which song I'm talking about right this is the Fred Bear song so I start hearing this song in my head. Oh yeah, Fred Bear, I can do this. And I draw back on the Kodiak Magnum and I kind of felt like it gets stronger and stronger as you pull it back. And I could hear, uh, we'll pause that. So I pull it back and I look, I point my eye down the shaft of the arrow. That's kind of how I aim. And I can see this sight picture. I see the razor head out in front of me. It's making a plus sign. It has the bleeder attached to it. And I kind of point it right at the rib cage of the, of the doe draw back and I can see, I'm like, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. And bam, I don't know, the moment I, it, it was like quiet. As soon as I let the arrow go, it goes twang. It's like silence. You could hear a pin drop. And it's almost, it, to me, it lasted forever. Like it was in slow motion. So I hear twang and then quiet and then smack. Bam, off she ran. And I thought, holy shit, I did it. Get the! F I couldn't believe I did it. I could hear the arrow smack. I could see the picture. Her, her feet kicked up. She took off into the woods. My arrow was true. My aim was good, and like within thirty seconds, not even thirty seconds, I heard that she ran and ran and ran and then crashed. And if you're a bow hunter, you know that sound. So 
it was not even 50 yards away. I'm thinking she expired, right? So I could see through the branches, see she was bunched up over my left. My heart was racing and my face was frozen with the permagrin smile. You know, it was like uh, I could hear the, the Ted Nugent song in the background, right? Because the deer was down and I thought, holy shit, I did it. And I'm like, raise my hand. I clench my fist in the air and go, yes, and trying to be quiet, right? And I was like one of those pantomime guys, like, yes, yes, but make a no noise, like the real quiet celebration. It was it was really cool. So anyway, the, I had like this sense of accomplishment that kind of came over me, like everything paid off. And, you know, if there's like this one percenter club of archers, I think I was in it, right? I'm a one percenter, right? So I, I was in the right place, the right time, made the shot. So I sat there for a minute and then, you know, it kind of got quiet in my head. And sure enough, I realized wait, there was another deer. It's still standing right here in front of me. And like the Fred Bear music, it's standing right here in front of me. The music stops, like the record. No shit, the other doe was standing 10 yards in front of me. Didn't even get phased by the commotion. I thought, holy crap, I'm talking in my head, right? So I pull myself together, get a second arrow. And now the second arrow is different. <laughs> different the second arrow was part of my original batch of these no-name ebay generic wood arrows that had the feather fletching right the ones i had to re-glue and <laughs> they were at least 25 years old whatever so remember i had to like glue these things together the feathers on and on so anyway i put it i put the arrow on i start to uh uh, knock it, draw back, and I look down, see this deer at the end of my arrow again, right? And uh, the music's playing in my head, and so I'm concentrating, concentrating, and I kind of aim toward, right towards the pump house right behind the shoulder and let it fly. It goes twang! And as soon as it left the shelf of the bow, I could tell something wasn't right. I watched it get clear the bow and then do a nosedive, like phew! like one of those paper planes that you don't fold right. So the arrow headed down, and I could see the, the feather fletching floating up and away. <laughs> so the fletching I glued on came off, made the arrow misfly, and I watched the arrow like bury itself in the dirt between me and the deer. It goes thump. So now the music in my head stops. I'm like, son of a bitch. So in my head, I'm cussing up a storm, and on the outside, I'm like trying to be really still, and I'm saying, oh shit, oh shit. And every bow hunter knows this, you know. The cool thing about bow hunting and why we do it is you get a second shot, right? And that was my second shot. The deer didn't move or whatever, so that was my second shot. For all they know, the sound is like a, a, a bird or a bug or something flying by. So, but guess what? The doe just stood there, looked side to side, and just stood there. I'm like, holy shit. I'm thinking in my head, right? <laughs> so I grab another one of these random fucking heroes. And uh, so guess what happens? Music starts back up. There it is. Fred Bear playing in my head. So I drive, draw back. And I, same thing. I'm like focused on the pump house right, right behind the shoulder. And by now the doe is still feeding. Took a couple more steps. But still like right in my kill zone, right? So I draw back. I let the arrow fly. And whack, like what the shit, like a loud smack. About 10 feet out in front of me, now remember I'm 20 feet in the air, so out in front of me in the middle of the air was a little freaking branch. <laughs> and there's my arrow stuck in this fucking twig hanging out in front of me. And when I say twig or branch, it's about the size of your index finger. So imagine this floating out in front of you is like your index finger 
And this arrow somehow found that thing and stuck right hanging out 10, fo- 10 feet in front of me. It's like, what the shit? <laughs> so here I am again, cussing on the inside, cussing and swearing. What the fuck? And guess what? Really, guess what? The doe was still standing there, just looking side to side, had no idea I was up there, had no idea what had just happened. And in my head, I'm thinking, Fred Bear himself has given me a gift. I'm going to get a third freaking shot. <laughs> so in my head, I'm thinking, this is like a sign from God, right? I, not only am I going to harvest the deer with my recurve, I'm going to get this third shot on the deer number two. Now, in my head, I, th- I already had this thing planned out, right? Wow, wait till I tell my buddies. This is going to go down in like the history books. I'll be the legend of Alcona County. All in one night, two deer with the recurve bow. This is all running through my head, right? And here I am living this groundhog moment again. I'm going to knock a third arrow, put it on there, let it fly. Shoot. And this time, it flew like a missile headed to Russia. <laughs> the missile headed to Russia it had like the long arc to it, right? And it zipped right over the top of the dough, just like wind, right? So the arrow just kind of buries itself in the tall grass. Same thing, the music stopped (laughs) and like vanished in thin air, like smoke vanishing. That was like my whole story of greatness of getting two deer in one night was whisked away. So then this time, by now, this deer wasn't going to stick around for a fourth shot. And boogied on out of there, took off into the woods. So the whole thing with the second doe and the three shots probably didn't even last about two minutes, probably about a minute and a half, 90 seconds, right? But it played out to me for like, it, it seemed like forever, like an hour. So here I am all disappointed thinking, damn, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, right? But then I realized, wait a second, I've got a deer. I shot a deer already. So, I, you know, I start smiling again, like, hell yeah, I shot a doe with my recurve. And it's back there. And I'm, hell, I'm a freaking one percenter, right? And this is all in my head. I'm talking to myself. I'm like, yes. So I keep reminding myself how fortunate I was, how lucky I was, not just to shoot a deer with the recurve. But the cool thing was, like, I set a goal. I stuck with it, come up with a plan for success, and, like, finally made it come true. So to me, that was every bit as important as actually harvesting a deer. So I'm sitting there. Once I think about it, I know, do I laugh? Do I cry or whatever? So I climbed down. I headed back to the cabin. I didn't want to spook the doe into running again just in case she hadn't, like, fully expired. So by now it was dark. The sun had gone down, and I'm coming up with a plan in my head. So... I'm going to head back. I'm going to get my favorite knife, maybe grab a rag, a rope, fire up the quad. You know, now the work really begins. If if you know about field dressing a deer by yourself, you know it's a lot of work. So I think I'm going to go back and all these things, have a cold beer, do my little celebration. And I'm quietly like walking the trail back to the cabin. I have my headlamp on. And uh, in my head, I'm kind of replaying the whole thing on the, your mental flat screen, right? Over and over how cool it was. And I'm really satisfied, really calm and mellow, and really like relieved at the whole thing. So here I was hunting solo this weekend. I couldn't wait to call my buddies and tell them the good news. So as I come through the meadow, hang a right, and I can see the cabin. And as I turn through and see the cabin, I'm like, something stopped me in my tracks. There's a fucking car in my driveway. The lights are on inside. I, in my head, I'm thinking, what the f- Who's in my cabin? I'm supposed to be here alone. I didn't, wasn't expecting anyone. Didn't did someone break in? Is what the hell's going on? So I opened the front door, and I'll be damned if I was surprised. Anne was there, and she showed up like in a surprise trip for the weekend. I was just so blown away. I'm telling you what, because she never, ever, ever, never, ever comes up hunting with me ever. 
so I'm still excited. So I start to ramble on like a little kid and I start with good news, bad news. You know, I say, good news, I did it. I shot a deer with my recurve. And then and bad news is you got to help me track it. <laughs> and there was a pause, like a really long pause. It got really quiet. So she pretended to be excited for me and, you know, I'm walking on a cloud, uh, walking on a cloud at that point, and because I had someone to tell, right? So being the first person to hear the story, I left out the part about the, the the three shots. I call it the three strikes, right? And I call that by now I'd made up in my head that deer is the deer of destiny because it was destined to live, right? I, and just that short walk, I made that up in my in my head. But anyway, days later, I told her about the three strikes and the deer of destiny and all that, and uh, she reminded me. She goes, "Hey, I'm cooking." Why don't we just stay here and eat? And I thought, that's a really good idea. It's dark anyway, so let's just eat. And um, that's kind of Anne's job, right? To keep things practical, calm me down, right? And she's good at making sense and, and thinking things through. So I said, okay, that's great. Let's have spaghetti dinner. And, you know, I'm trying to eat my spaghetti. I don't even think I chewed it. I inhaled like the whole plate, right? So we get done. I grab a couple of headlamps and uh, flashlights, and we started... Uh, like the second part of my bow hunting adventure. So tracking. And if you ever track, that's to me, it's one of the funnest things. So the tracking was like ideal, right? The leaves had fallen and the blood trail, it reminded me of, it was bright red, right? So it reflects off of the white light from our LED lights, LED, like our headlamps. So tracking was pretty easy. It looked like someone walked through the forest and spilled a cup of red paint if you just made a trail through the woods. And sure enough, the spill stops and there's the deer right there. She didn't even go 40 yards from where I shot her. So the shot was just a little bit back from the wheelhouse, a little bit high, but lucky for me, after I after I uh, dressed her, I found it was, she's, I severed the uh, aorta. So I was pretty proud of myself. So not only filling the doe tag with the recurve, but it was a quick, humane kill. And I, that's, I'm all about that if I can, if I can help it, right? So I spared Anne from watching me field dress it. I said, you know, it's chilly, fall evening, you can see your breath in the air. I said, let's leave it for tonight. I'll come back in the morning, take care of it. And so we walked back and uh, got back to the cabin, shared a bottle of wine. I probably told her the story like six more times and how cool it was. And I, bless her heart, she pretended to be interested every time I told, <laughs> told her. She's so patient. So we spent uh, the next day, you know, I went and got the deer and everything, but we spent the next day hiking around and we had a really great weekend. So... I'll remember this hunt forever. Like I said, it was 2016. And one of the things I'm careful, I try not to spoil memories like those by trying to repeat them, right? So I have many people try to relive a great experience. They want to recreate it. They want to make it just like the last time. And I'm not one of those people. When something great happens, I enjoy it and I treasure it and I accept it for what it is and be thankful. You know, you we get disappointed many times when we try and recreate those really treasured moments. Every bow season, I set a different goal. Most of the time, of course, I don't achieve it. But when I do, it's a big deal. It's pretty special to me. So for this season, for 2020, my goal is to complete, I want to do an overnight backpack bow hunting trip. I want to walk out the back door into the Huron National Forest. I want to carry everything I need for a night or two on my back. And I want to bow hunt an area I've never been to before, an area you can't drive to that you have to walk to. Another goal I have, this is one I do pretty much every year. It's an annual thing. Um, I try and do it every season is to be a steward for the outdoors and introduce someone that's new to archery that's never done it before. It's never harvested a deer before. So with that being said, there's probably a handful of you out there, if not one or two, whatever. If you're interested in learning about bow hunting, you want to give it a try and you're not sure where to start, reach out to me. 
Uh, and let's talk about it. Rackhouserambling at gmail.com. That was my Jeff story for this week. I'll be right back. Okay, we're back. This is episode eight. I hope you guys like that story. I like telling it. It's pretty funny. So uh, this segment, I'm going to combine a couple of uh, two things that I like. The cool book to read and what I've been binge watching. So like I said before, I'm a big fan of natural national parks. So while surfing, you know, the on-demand stuff or whatever, I stumble across a PBS documentary about national parks. It's pretty cool. It was made by a guy named Ken Burns. And if you don't know Ken Burns, he's a famous uh, documentary documentary guy. And he's made documentaries about the Civil War, about Lewis and Clark, a bunch of other things. Um, this one is called The National Parks, America's Best Idea. And it's long if you want to, it's a long watch, you know, six episodes and they're a few hours each. And um, this whole National Park stuff to me is really interesting. And the documentary really goes in depth about it. In the United States, we kind of take our open spaces for granted. Um, Ann and I visited uh, quite a few national parks, and it's incredible every time how many people you meet that are from not just around the United States, but from other freaking countries, for real. People come from around the world just to see our open spaces. Um, I've been reading a book at the same time. This kind of ties into it, the cool book to read, and it's called That Wild Country by Mark Kenyon. And... Uh, Mark Kenyon is a guy I heard from. He has a podcast called Wired to Hunt, and he's a kid from Michigan. You can hear him on another podcast called The Meat Eater. But he wrote a book, and it chronicles, keeps track of his, it was a year-long road trip through some of our national parks. And at each park, he tells you about his visit, the hikes he takes, and he also talks about the history of each park. And one thing I learned is that many of the parks have a common beginning. So like, one or two people have to champion the cause, have to want the park, and they have to fight to make the land into a national park. So before it's a national park, before coming a national park, these areas, you know, the land was used by ranchers to like graze cattle. Um, some of them were being cleared by lumber barons or clear cut. Some were even mined for things like coal and precious metals. So to have a, a, a piece of land set aside as a national park, it I didn't know this, but it is a huge uphill battle. You, there's no way you could do it today. So this was done way back when uh, the 20s, the 30s, the 1900s, 1800s, some of them. But So somebody had to take up the cause, and they had to convince the local population it was in their best interest to stop using the land for profit and save it for recreation for future generations, right? So think. Uh, here's an example, Niagara Falls. These falls, they're like this big wonder of nature, right? Everyone needs to see them. And um, there's like all this thundering water feature. And the sad thing is it's it was never protected from private enterprise. So that's why if you ever go to visit Niagara Falls, the land around it is all private land. It's been divided up. It's sold. Um, the best overlooks that you have to pay money to get a, to get a view of the falls, right? So all around the falls, the area turned into a tourist trap. It's still like that today. Go to Google Earth and check it out. And you think about like Niagara Falls, what does a wax museum have to do with waterfalls, right? There's a wax museum, Ripley's Believe It or Not, right? What does all that have to do with this natural beauty that's Niagara Falls? Nothing. So you kind of get the picture. But so not only did you have to convince the locals, but now you have to convince uh, politicians in Washington, D.C., to try and turn this into a national park. You have to come up with a, uh, present an argument 
to, to a politician that's hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles away to, to help with your cause, and you have to convince them that you want to set aside this land for future generations, right? So that means there's no more lumbering, no wax museums, no fudge stores. You can't even hunt a national forest, right? How's that for an uphill battle? And by the way, that politician you're talking to, he's not an outdoors person. He's like, well, back way back when they were the, the rich guys, the upper crust guys, they'd wear a suit and tie, well-educated, and they would never even dream of like camping out, right? That's the, the kind of guy you're trying to sell this idea to. So each park had to be converted from sometimes private land or general use state land, had to be converted to a national park, right? And this doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years and years. And each one would cost millions of dollars to do. So for every national park, this happened, right? So I'll try not to bore you with all the details, but one stood out to me. Um, south of Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming is Grand Teton National Park. So before it was a national park, it was designated as a national monument. In 1929, this is going on, right? So the president could enact this national monument thing without getting anyone's approval. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt would do quite a bit. So a national monument would kind of half-ass protect it. But the problem was there's no room in the budget there to hire anyone to ever enforce any laws or to do anything. So even though right now what would happen was Grand Teton was a national monument and um, you would still get people letting their cattle roam all over and eat up all the grass, their sheep, and all that sort of thing. And back then, the park was a lot smaller. When it was a national monument, it was just the mountain range itself and a few lakes at the base. So north of it is Yellowstone, and the park superintendent there, his name was Horace Albright, and he saw this happening, and he thought, what a shame. You know, we have these beautiful mountains called the Grand Tetons and this beautiful valley, and you're outside of Jackson, Wyoming. And his vision was to make the park bigger, a lot bigger. And the only way they could do that was to buy up all this land that was out there. And what he did, I'm, I'm giving you like the paraphrase version, but he convinced this uber millionaire named John D. Rockefeller, right? You've probably heard the name Rockefeller. He was one of the guys um, featured on the History Channel documentary. It's called The Men Who Built America, right? And you've heard of Rockefeller Center and all these other Rockefeller things, right? So this was the guy. And at the time, he was a big philanthropist trying to give away money. He was given to all sorts of charities. So this Albright superintendent convinced Rockefeller to help him with this his dream he had of the Grand Teton National Park. And sure as shit, he went for it. But Rockefeller doesn't do anything halfway. So the first time that uh, Albright talked to him, he called. He had a plan for a park. Well, Rockefeller said, you need to be bigger, a lot bigger. So it ended up, they came up with a plan. Rockefeller started this real estate company, and they did it on the sly secretly and started buying up property, bought up about 33,000 acres, what I was reading. And he did it secretly because the locals in the area were against it. And think about it. If now you're taking all this land, I can't graze my cattle, I can't graze my sheep, I can't cut down the timber. I can't do anything. You're going to turn it into a friggin' park. So the locals found out eventually, and they fought the whole park idea tooth and nail for years and years and years. And this went on for so long. Um, the crazy thing, Rockefeller was buying this land to give to the American people. So think about 33,000 acres that he wants to give to the American people but nobody wants it. And this went on for years and years and years. Congress wouldn't give any money to it. The locals didn't want, everyone's fighting. And he was at the point, he was ready to just sell the land back. And think about that, 33,000 acres this guy spent out of his own pocket 
did all these things and was almost ready to give it back and they ended up turning into a, a beautiful national park so either it's strange and every every national park has a story like that if you look up on great smoky mountains yosemite arches redwood national park all of these parks you're going to find that there is a handful of people that fought to make that area a national park like a national monument and things yosemite all of them had someone like that and if if you're bored one day google it and see every park has a really really interesting history so anyway i binge watch uh, the pbs documentary and while i was binge watching it i also read mark kenyon's book so check them both out the, that wild country by mark kenyon it's an easy read you'll like it and then the documentary uh, is called the national parks america's best idea by ken burns on PBS. They're both really cool, so check them out. Episode number eight, I have a bourbon spotlight. Now this spotlight's gonna be a little bit different. Um, I wanna talk about uh, rye whiskeys. On my shelf, you know, if you see my pictures here, you ever come over, um, right now I have uh, three ryes on my shelf, Rittenhouse Rye, Old Forester Rye, and Peerless Rye. So I wanted to start with a definition. What is rye, rye whiskey, right? So of course, like I always go to the internet, heavenhilldistillery.com. Uh, that's where Ritten, uh, Rittenhouse is from, but they have a really good definition. I'll read it for you right from their website. Uh, the historic whiskey was once the most popular style of whiskey in the Northeast, especially Maryland and Pennsylvania. Heaven Hill Distillery continues to make rye whiskey in the same tradition. The, dis the distillation process is similar to bourbon, but the mash bill must be 51% rye. So in bourbon, it has to be 51% corn. In rye, it has to be 51% rye. So they go on to say, the sweet, spicy taste, distinctive character of this style of whiskey consistently earns high praise from critics and connoisseurs alike. So then they go on to uh, talk about their own uh, uh, rye. It's called Rittenhouse Rye. It says, Rittenhouse straight rye whiskey has a storied past with a heritage that commemorates Philadelphia's famous Rittenhouse Square. Bottled in bond, Today's Rittenhouse carries the distinct spicy flavor that is long associated with the brand. Rittenhouse is the rye whiskey of choice for both mixologists and whiskey aficionados alike. So Rittenhouse rye, they tell us, is 100 proof, and it is four years old. So let me take a taste, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to taste all three of them. We'll see what we think. So first one is the Rittenhouse rye. Oh, it's very smooth, very, very smooth. No burn whatsoever. All that. Mellow. I like that one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The next one is the Old Forester. And then again, I went to their website, oldforester.com. Um, theirs is uh, Old Forester Rye. It's a historic recipe acquired in 1940. So you went out and bought a recipe uh, acquired in 1940 by Ousley Brown. Old Forester Rye features a mash bill of 65% rye, 20% malted barley, and 15% corn. Wow. Such a high proportion of barley allows for a fully natural fermentation process, foregoing the need for artificial enzymes commonly found in high rye mash bills. Additionally, a generous percentage of malt yields a unique floral character, balancing the sharp, 
brisk spice of the rye grain. Continuing our legacy of quality and consistency, Old Forester uses its own proprietary yeast strain, produces every barrel, and distills every drop. At 100 proof, Old Forester rye plays beautifully in a cocktail, but also stands up boldly on its own. So let's try, try that one, Old Forester rye. Wow, that one's more spicy, I can tell you that much, but a really smooth finish. Like I, like I prefer no burn, but it's definitely more spicy. I guess I never thought when they say spice of the rye grain. Now I now I get it. Not like a cinnamon spice, maybe like a a nutmeg spice, something like that. Okay, now let's go on to the third one. Is Peerless Rye? Same thing. Went to their webpage. Uh, full body taste cannot be imitated. Peerless straight rye whiskey is a well-balanced rye, bolstered by sweet tones of maple, brown sugar, and light citrus sweetness. Finished with a hint of oak and no burn on the throat due to the carefully unique distilling process. Peerless offers a smooth taste that stands out from other ryes. A palatable sipping rye to be savored with friends and family. Non-chill filtered, strictly sweet mash, barrel proof, no added water. So let's try the Peerless one. So this bottle of Peerless, it is 108.8 proof. It, it tastes hotter than the other two. Let me... Uh, Hmm, and a little more spicy yet. So out of the three, the Rittenhouse is mild, the Old Forester, a little more spice, and this one from Peerless says on the bottle, age 24 months in wood, it is probably the spiciest of the three. It's very good. All three of them are outstanding. I highly recommend them. So um, one of the things I was asking myself is why are these bourbon guys making rye whiskey? So I Googled it and I found this good article on a website called coolmaterial.com. He says, in a way, rye whiskey is the mirror image of bourbon. It follows similar rules as bourbon, but does so with different ingredients. Where bourbon tends to be sweeter and smokier with hints of caramel rye, and let me start over, sweeter and smokier with hints of caramel, rye whiskey is spicier. Includes notes of pepper, grass, and grain. Just as bourbon must be 51% corn, to be considered American rye, the spirit must be 51% rye. It must be a minimum of 51% rye. We found an Old Forester 65. Though, like bourbon, most expressions will opt for something higher. Furthermore, rye can be distilled no higher than 160 proof, aged no higher than 125, and bottled no lower than 80. Barrels are much the same as bourbon, newly constructed charred oak barrels. So there you have it. So that was three ryes we did. We tasted Rittenhouse, we tasted Old Forester, we tasted Peerless. All three of them to me taste uh, very, very good on the palate, very easy on the throat, no burn for any of them. And I highly recommend all three of them. That was our bourbon spotlight. So we're gonna close it out um, for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I always have fun doing these. And like I always say, keep the feedback coming. It really helps. I wanna say special thanks to my friend Martin. Um, by spreading the word, I, I 
can't thank you enough. It tells me, though, that I'm recording something worth listening to, and I really appreciate it that you recommend it to other people. And I want to thank Jason. Um, he told me, he gave me some good feedback about telling more Jeff stories, so I will. Not all of them are G-rated, so stay tuned for a couple more. I got I have some, some whoppers I'll tell in the next few episodes. And I also want to say uh, thanks to Chicken Shack and Warren on Ryan Road. Uh, Chicken Shack helped us out with lunch the other day. Ken Sobeck and his family, the Sobeck's own Chicken Shack, are really nice people. He is a really cool guy to talk to, and I really appreciate it. If you guys have a chance, uh, please patronize them. They're very good people. So thanks for listening. This is Episode 8, Rackhouse Ramblings. We'll be back next week. You guys be safe. Bye.